Have you ever wondered what it's like to be buried in an avalanche? Weird foreign feeling of despair. Or how it feels to crash a skydive? I remember hearing a thud, feeling my body hit the ground. Or how you would react if you were being attacked by an alligator? At the end of my leg is this huge alligator head on my leg. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a victim of an attack. Dragging me into the bathroom and saying, I'm going to kill you, now you're going to die. You'll hear from a man who discovered a baby. How could this be? How could there be a baby on the ground? And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Clanky County 911, there's a man at my back door. He's trying to get in. What Was That Like is a podcast about real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at What Was That Like. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Um, and then I did three separate clemency petitions to the governor. And finally, the third one was successful. If you hadn't happened upon the article that you read about her, she would not be alive today. Yeah, she would have been executed. I make that noise a lot in this episode because it's the only way I have with my limited vocabulary of expressing just how blown my mind is every time that Justin Brooks says something absolutely remarkable. Justin is the co-founder of the California Innocence Project, which is a non-profit that is part of the California Western School of Law in San Diego. And they do the most remarkable work, which is to provide pro bono legal services to exonerate wrongly convicted inmates. I can't think of many worse things than being put in prison for decades with no hope of parole when you didn't even commit the crime for which you're there. It's a nightmarish thought that in all probability there are thousands of people in this situation right now. So Justin is one of those people I'm just so happy exist. And what's really cool is that he was recently played by actor Greg Kinnear in the movie Brian Banks about its namesake former American footballer who was wrongfully convicted of rape. We talk about the movie and what it was like being shadowed by a famous movie star, as well as some of the heartbreaking cases Justin has taken on and the problems with our legal system. We talk as well about the racial inequality in the US, which is an important topic, especially given that this coming Saturday, the 20th of February, is World Day of Social Justice. Follow Justin on at Justin O. Brooks on Twitter or Instagram or simply Justin Brooks on Facebook and find out more on the CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org. This will all be in the show notes. Also, for the first time, I've added a little more than 10 minutes of bonus content for my patrons. In it, Justin and I talk about silly things like accents and Justin's family in Derby and Liverpool, as well as some serious stuff relating to race impartial news channels, and some differences between the UK and the US. Find that on patreon.com slash andrewgold. There's even a teaser for the bonus material in the outro to this podcast, so you'll get a bit of that. 
I'll also be doing a post-show chat, like an old-fashioned chat room that everyone can join, all free, on Thursday the 18th of February at 8pm GMT. So work out what that is, depending on where you happen to be in the world. And I'll see if Justin can join us to respond to any of your questions. I'll be answering questions about the podcast as a whole, of course. It's on a website called Discord, and I'll include the link in the show notes. Right, that's everything, isn't it? Um, Let's get on with the show. So I am the director and founder of the California Innocence Project. Uh, We are a law school clinic. We operate out of a law school where I'm a law professor, and we um, investigate cases of wrongful conviction and get those people out of prison. So I started the project back in 1999 after working on a case where um, I discovered this very young woman. She was 21 when she was convicted. She was factually innocent and sitting on death row. She had been convicted of a double homicide and sentenced to death. And the article said that she was sentenced on a plea bargain. And so I thought, how can that be possible? How do you get a death sentence on a plea bargain? Because the whole process of a plea bargain is I'll plead guilty if I get a lesser sentence. And you can't get a greater sentence than the death penalty. Um, So I actually went out and met with her on death row. At the time, I was teaching law school in Michigan. And uh, she tells me this story, how her lawyer told her she should plead out. That was her best option and that she was innocent. <laughs> so I said, you're innocent and you pled guilty and got the death penalty? Yeah. So I went back to my class the next day that I was teaching first year criminal law students. And I told them just what I just told you. There's a woman, she's 21. She's sentenced to death. She's got an execution date. She says she's innocent. Um, who wants to help me out? And four students raised their hands and uh, we started investigating it. So, you know, that night we're sitting around my kitchen table going through the file and uh, we started doing the crime scene investigation. And we very quickly found out that the whole case was a complete fabrication, that the only eyewitness was more than 400 feet away, looking out of her apartment window uh, at midnight when it was pitch black. And she claimed she saw my client shoot this guy. And I later found out that she was actually a girlfriend of one of the two victims, and she just completely fabricated her statement. And everywhere we looked, the case was false. Um, So working on that case, I discovered that, A, you know, there were innocent people sitting even on death row. And I also realized that using a real case to train students was the best way to make great lawyers. Because you can sit in a classroom and talk till you're blue in the face, but you take someone to a crime scene, you show them how to do crime scene reconstruction, you take them out to a prison, you show them how to interview witnesses and clients. Um, it's, a, it's a skill profession. It's not this sort of, um, and I think in the UK, because I've taught in the UK, it's even more so treated like an academic profession. Um, and it's, you know, you can't learn to be a plumber in a classroom and you can't yeah. learn to be a good trial lawyer and a good investigator in a classroom. You have to do field work. So that's why I decided to start the California Innocence Project. At that point, there were four or five people doing this kind of work um, around the United States. And we all got together and we created this Innocence Network that now has 60 projects in it. 
And then we've got projects in Europe and in Asia and in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and we all kind of collaborate on our work, but they're all independent organizations operating in different parts of the world. And it's, it's all basically the same work. We investigate innocence cases. We get people out of prison and we wow. use those processes to educate. And then we do also a lot of legal reform work where we um, get laws passed and lobby to change things to improve the criminal justice system. Are those four people who put their hands up and helped with the first case, are they still involved? Yeah, so one of them I'm still good friends with 25 years later. The other three kind of distantly on Facebook and things. And the sad story is um, we got her death sentence reversed and had to go back and do a whole new sentencing hearing and go through the whole process. But we couldn't get the court to withdraw the guilty plea. So it took me 25 more years to free her. <gasps> I actually just freed her three months ago. Oh, my God. I didn't know. Congratulations. Thank you. Her name is Marilyn Malero, and she's just been released during COVID and finally got her released by getting a clemency granted by the governor of Illinois to free her. What does clemency mean? So in the United States, actually, this comes from Britain. In Britain, you call it the royal prerogative, which is where the queen and all the kings in history have had the power to free anyone from prison that the king or queen chooses. So we brought that concept to the colonies and uh, we put it in our federal constitution and in every state constitution that the president of the United States has the power to grant clemency or pardon anyone in the federal system, meaning he can reduce their sentence through a clemency procedure or can pardon them outright, which is like they've never been convicted of the crime. Right. Um, and each governor has that power in, over their state system. So uh, in California, our governor, Governor Newsom, has granted several of these. Uh, in fact, myself and two other lawyers in my office eight years ago, we walked 712 miles from our office in San Diego to his office in Sacramento to bring awareness to some of these cases and to get him to grant clemencies to our clients, which ultimately was successful. It's a long walk, isn't it? It took, yeah, 50 days, 712 miles <gasps> of just walking. And a lot of it was desert and very, very hot. But I'll tell you this, I fell in love with long distance walking. And so the following year, I walked the Camino Santiago Compostela from the French border the whole way across Spain. Wow, uh, which a... <laughs> I've seen I've seen you advocate for exercise. Actually, that is, is, is <laughs> I wish I could do it because I think there is some genetics involved. Some people are sort of more taken by walking and things because I I do get tired after about ten minutes. So <laughs> you may need a diet or vitamin change. I don't know, oh, so but tired. yeah, for me, it's absolutely critical to being able to do homicide cases for. You know, now it's 30 years I've been doing homicide cases and you take this stuff home and, you know, these clients are in your head constantly. These horrible crime scenes are in your head constantly. And if I didn't exercise every single day, uh, I wouldn't have been able to work at this stuff for as long as I have. How did she feel upon being released a few months ago? I mean, what was that moment like when, when she did you walk out? I've seen sometimes you walk out arm in arm with someone. Did you were you able to do that in this case? Sadly, I wasn't because due to COVID, uh, she's oh, in Chicago sure. and I'm in California. So I had somebody pick her up, um, but I got to talk to her immediately afterwards. And honestly, I couldn't 
speak when I got the message from the governor's office that she was being freed. It was like 25 years working on this case. And um, it was almost like I didn't know who I was if I wasn't representing her. <laughs> it had been that long. It had been so much part of my identity was screaming and yelling about her case for so long. And, you know, I, I took it through every state court, every federal court, took it up to the United States Supreme Court. I even petitioned the United Nations to declare that Illinois had committed this massive human rights violation and they refused to rule on my petition. Um, and then I did three separate clemency petitions to the governor and finally the third one was successful. If you hadn't happened upon the article that you read about her, she would not be alive today. Yeah, she would have been executed. And that's, uh, you know, that's... That's the, the difficulty of all this work. You know, in the beginning of each year when I'm training my new students, I have to kind of get them to understand the gravity of this stuff without scaring them off. But the reality is we're the last stop. Like when we close a case or we reject a case, that person will most likely die in prison because California's sentences are crazy how long they are. I mean, we have... The life sentences are just typical. Life without parole. And we have a three strikes law where, you know, you commit three felonies, you're in prison the rest of your life. So if, if we get these cases after they lost their trial, they lost their appeals, and we're kind of um, the last stop. So it is, it is serious. It's strange that because I think the the outside, um, you, you know, how we view California is, is very liberal as a state. Mm-hmm. It's surprising. Why do they have such strict... Um, prison sentences yeah california is is impossible to stereotype most Mm. of the stereotypes come from tv and movies about la and there's really two californias there's blue california and red california and the further you get from the water the weirder it gets (laughs) and the more conservative it gets uh some of these Yeah, some of these desert towns, it's like 100 years ago when you roll into town with their elected sheriffs and their tough on crime policies. So on the one hand, yeah, we have some incredibly progressive things like our environmental laws and and things like that where we really lead the country. But in criminal justice, um, we have the biggest prison system in the United States. And, you know, the United States has the biggest one in the world. And um, politicians have been very successful at tough on crime policies to get elected and they get money from the unions. Uh, The prison officers union is a very powerful union. The people who build prisons, it's the correctional industry is, you know, a billion dollar, multi, multi multi-billion dollar industry. Um, So on the one hand, you have some progressive politics in some areas and very, very conservative politics in other areas. Are judges being lobbied or pressured to extend sentences by by private companies who run the prisons? Well, what happens is the, uh, you know, the governors and people running for election are the ones that ultimately build these facilities. Sometimes judges get pressured because in the United States, a lot of judges are elected. And uh, there was a case called Willie Horton um, many years ago when George Bush I was running for president against Mike Dukakis, who was the governor of Massachusetts. And Mike Dukakis was way ahead in the polls and looked like he was going to be our next president. And then George Bush started this campaign based on a guy who got released from prison in Massachusetts, where Dukakis was the governor. 
And what they basically did is they went out and found somebody who got paroled and then committed a violent crime and then went on TV and said, Mike Dukakis is soft on crime. This is not the guy we want to be president. And George Bush wins the election. Every politician has learned in the last few decades from that case that politically, it doesn't pay to even appear to be soft on crime because that's the thing that scares people. And it's the one area of the law. If you look at areas of the law, there's very few areas of the law that politicians use to get elected. Criminal law is one they absolutely use everywhere in the world because you can scare people into voting for you. If you say, I'm tough on crime, I'm going to put more police on the streets, I'm going to protect your family, and then that just starts the whole process. And you know, what's interesting in the United States, and I know this is a big issue in Europe as well, is there's been a transition towards immigration being that sort of punching bag, where now they say, we're going to lock up immigrants, we're going to deport them. And the new industry in the United States is immigration detention facilities. And those people who build those are lobbying and getting tougher immigration laws passed. And it's all the behind the scenes that goes on in the politics that creates, at the end of the day, you know, this insanely expensive system, innocent people getting caught up in it and people spending the rest of their lives incarcerated. Wow, you're blowing my mind a bit, actually. And it, it sounds a bit naive, I guess, because it's just it's not something I've really thought about. And before I came across the Innocence Project, I'm just being totally honest, I hadn't thought too much about that. Of course, there have been a few series and things about this kind of thing happening. But I hadn't really thought too much about how private companies such as the detention centers uh, affected politics and how dangerous that is. I don't know how you how one gets out of that. How do you, is, what can you do? Exactly. How do we get out of it? I mean... How do we take money out of politics? And I work in Latin America a lot. Um, I actually oversee 25 innocence organizations that we've started from the Mexican border all the way down to Chile and Argentina. I lived in Argentina for six years. Oh, okay. And I'm sh- my girlfriend's Argentine and she's a lawyer. And uh, so she was fascinated as well to learn that you have the Innocence Project there as well. Yeah, we've got a great project in, in Buenos Aires. And, um, hmm. and she would know the the guy who directs it is actually a famous filmmaker, um, Enrique Pinero, who did a film about a wrongful conviction in Argentina. And then he came and met with me in San Diego and we launched that project and I, I sit on the board of it. But working in all these different countries and seeing their criminal justice system and how money impacts the system is very, very powerful. Um, and, you know, Latin America, the level of corruption is just very blatant. But in the United States, we have a different type of corruption, which is it's not people putting money in their pockets. Of course, that happens like everywhere, but that's not, you know, a plague. But what happens is the money to get reelected and keep your jobs, that's just flowing freely from these industries. And until we can take the money out of politics, it's going to be corrupted. Um, and, and people are going to move in the direction where money is because they need that to hold on to their jobs. Uh, in, in the United States, members of Congress are reelected every two years. So just imagine you are constantly running for reelection. It never stops. And that takes money to get back into office. And, and that leads to the corruption of needing that money to run these campaigns. And it's all totally legal. Um, but it, it, it creates those kind of problems. How many people apply each year and how many do you pick or are you able to spend the time and resources on? 
that's where most of the resources are spent is on that selection process. Um, yeah. Thousands, anywhere from, you know, 1,500 to 6,000 cases we look at every year. And then when we get a big media thing going on, the number rockets. Uh, the, when the movie Brian Banks came out, which was a movie about one of our clients that was in the theaters last summer in the United States. Mm. And I know it's on Netflix in the UK. Um, yeah. It, uh, you know, our numbers went up a lot. So we have a team of law students that go through every case that comes in the office. Uh, we process it in. If it looks like it could be an innocence case, we have 100 volunteer lawyers that will review the cases. And the sad thing is most of them get closed and not because we don't think they're innocent, but because we know that based on the legal standards, we'll never be able to prove it. Um, and there's just certain types of cases that are unprovable. For example, drug cases, you know, there's only two elements in a drug case. And that is, did you have drugs and did you know you had drugs? And if a jury believed that, there's no way to unring that bell. Even though I've seen a lot of cases where I'm thinking they might not have known, you know, five guys get pulled over in a car. One guy's got cocaine in his pocket. Under California laws, everybody can be charged with possession uh, without you actually having it on your person. Yeah. Somebody's got it in the glove box. Uh, they created very expansive drug laws back in the 70s and 80s because what would happen was um, kids who were dealing drugs and adults who were dealing drugs, I dealt with a lot of juveniles when I practiced in Washington, D.C., they'd keep all the drugs in one spot and they'd go back and forth to the spot to get a small quantity for each sale. That way they would never have that much on them and they could only be charged with minor drug charges. So they changed the law and said, you know, if you're within 100 feet of these drugs and they can prove your connection and knowledge to them, then wow. you can be charged with possession of it. Was there a racial aspect aspect to that? I remember hearing about Reagan, was it, around that sort of time? And some people believe that was sort of a, a, a way to get uh, the black community or, or something. Is that right? Well, if you go back to Nixon, clearly Nixon. it was a war on inner city America. And then... You know, when you start getting, when I get into debates with people on that, it's just so absurd because the proof is right in front of you in the sentences that we created. Crack cocaine had sentences that was like 10 times greater than powder <laughs> cocaine. And there's no rationale for that in terms of the harm of the drug, the addictiveness of the drug, all the arguments you make for drug laws is just simply a cheaper form that was being used in the inner city. And by making those laws so great, you had generation of young black men um, who ended up in prison. And uh, I started practicing law in 1990 in Washington, D.C. at the height of those crack wars. And it was so depressing just watching one young black man after the other just getting crazy long sentences um, for drug possession. And, uh, you know, that's why we're where we are. You know, that's that's how we ended up creating the largest prison system in the world. If, if you think about that for a second and compare us to other countries, you know, China has a billion more people than we do, and we have more people in prison. Wow. Um, crime is almost always linked to economics. How many people are in prison? Do you know, roughly? It's, what is it, 300 million or 350 million in the States? Yeah, and we're in the like 3 million, 4 million range of people incarcerated. And what I'm saying is like, if we're, we have the biggest economy in the world. So by some measures, we're the wealthiest country in the world. You can 
quibble with that and say some places like Qatar, maybe individuals have more wealth, but sure. we're at least one of the wealthiest countries in the world. So how does one of the wealthiest countries in the world have the most people in prison if crime is tied to economics? And the reason is the war on drugs. Uh, it's because it's also tied to politics. And these decades of drug laws and enforcement have just filled our prisons with mm. drug offenders that shouldn't be there. There's better ways to deal with that situation. Over the years, you've freed 35 people. Um, that's a lot of people whose lives, you know, are totally in your hands now. It must seem fairly slow because it's sort of one or two people a year. But then you have to think about the fact that these are real people's lives and stuff. And I guess I want to go back to the, uh, to the question of how do you choose the people, the 35 people? Do they tend to be murders and things or do they range totally? You know, we've had cases that are non-murder cases. The murder cases, you see a lot of exonerations because typically they involve scientific evidence and scientific evidence can also be used to disprove the prosecution's theory. Uh, you see a lot of rape cases, not as many now as we did in the 90s. Uh, but when DNA first came on the scene, you know, you could just go back and get an old rape kit and you could prove it wasn't your client who committed the rape. Uh, so there's certain types of crimes that lend themselves to this work. And my example is drug crimes, almost never going to be successful. But if it's a rape or a murder case, you take a close look at what was the scientific evidence that convicted them and what kind of evidence can undo it. Um, you know, going back to your questions about the 35 people and your comment about, you know, it's very mm. slow. Yeah. This is something, you know, I've spent 30 years thinking about. And I'm constantly telling my lawyers about it and telling my students about it. If you focus on the system as a whole, you become incapacitated from doing anything. Because if you really think of the numbers and the people we can't help, yeah, it's just devastating. And so I tell them, look, you focus today on who's in front of you and what you can do today. And then tomorrow you do the same thing. And each individual we save, it's their family, it's their friends, it's the community. In a lot of these cases, we found the guilty person. Right, right now in Riverside, there's a trial going on with three murderers. And we exonerated this guy, Horace Roberts. He spent 20 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. He got convicted because he was having an affair with the victim. And he lied about the affair and that got twisted into you know, ultimately convicting him. And the police failed to look at the obvious suspect, which was her husband and his cohorts. And we were eventually able to prove that. So it's each case does have a tremendous impact. And then on the legislative end, what we've been able to do with each one of these stories is educate people about wrongful convictions and then ultimately use those stories to get legislators to start changing the law. So, for example, we've had a number of people who are convicted based on bad identifications. And this past year, we got California to change the law on how identification procedures are done to decrease the number of wrongful convictions. And it also increases the number of rightful convictions. Right. But the procedures just weren't scientifically accurate. And we do a lot of that work behind the scenes. And I think that's where, in reality, we're having the bigger impact. I mean... The more, I always say, it's like my heart are the individual cases. And that's why I never want to get away from because that's what motivates me every day. But yeah. in reality, the bigger impact we have is all these students we're training. 
So hundreds and hundreds that are going out there and they're going to be good lawyers and they're going to be good judges and they're going to be good legislators. And then all the reforms that we're getting done that for generations people will benefit from that we won't even know about. What does it feel like when there must be times when you aren't able to get a, a conviction overturned? What happens then? You just know they're innocent and then you just go home and have to live your life and they have to live their lives out in prison. Well, first of all, we, <laughs> we don't really ever give up on a case because yeah. if we firmly believe they're innocent, there's always some way. And the last call is clemency from the governor. We know the governor can ultimately still give clemency after we've failed to win it through the courts. So we've had a number of clients released from clemency. I've just yesterday had a discussion with the governor's office about a couple of cases I'm wanting them to look at. But yeah, when we lose cases, when we get a judge to reopen a case and we do a hearing and we put all the evidence on and then we usually go back home and we wait for the judge's decision. When that decision comes in and we lost, it is devastating to everyone in my office. Um, I've seen it many, many times. We all sit out in the front of the office and we read through the decision and people start crying. And then we kind of go back into our offices and a lot of people just go home. And then the next day we try again. Is there a particular case that sticks in the heart for you? Well, Marilyn, for all the years of every single time I lost it, I just couldn't, it was heartbreaking because I knew she was seeing me get all these other people out of prison and mm -hmm. she was my original client and yet she wasn't going home. Um, I had sort of a devastating one this week. Uh, the governor had granted um, clemency to my client. We got his sentence reduced so that he was parole eligible. We went and we argued at the parole hearing the parole board granted his release. It went back to the governor's office and the governor reversed his own decision and decided to keep him in prison. It's, uh, oh, so we man. were ready to walk him out and his family were ready to have him come home. And yeah, this work is, uh, I always tell law students, if you want to have a flat life, you know, kind of where you go to work at nine in the morning, you go home at five, you know exactly what to expect when you get to your desk and then you just go back to your own life. This is not the work to do because this job has incredible highs like I think no other lawyer gets where you walk somebody home. Um, if you look at the YouTube video, Man Eats Hamburger, after 36 years, you'll see a video that has millions of hits on it. And it's me walking my client out of prison after 36 years and taking him to a restaurant to eat a hamburger. <laughs> uh, those days are extraordinary. Um, I don't think... Most people get that kind of experience in their life where they've brought somebody back from the dead, basically. But when we lose, it's also devastatingly bad. And, um, and we carry those around with us until they get out. And, and I know at some point I'm going to have to quit doing this. And, I, you know, uh, there's still going to be work to do. That's hard. What had the, the person done who, where the governor had changed his position on, on that? So it was a murder case. Uh, he was convicted of murdering his wife. Uh, it's a crazy case. Our client came home uh, to take his wife to a doctor's appointment. He found her strangled um, in a bathtub full of cleaners oh. um, with a penny jar on top of her. She was six months pregnant. Uh, horrible, horrible case. He, uh, my client was actually a probation and parole officer. And... Uh, he ends up getting convicted of it. 
we discover that it was actually his brother that committed the crime. His brother, it was kind of a tale of two brothers. One brother who's this kind of upstanding citizen, parole probation officer, and his other brother had actually committed a murder and had a similar MO of how disposed of the body. Uh, we had the brother's best friend come in and testify that he'd confessed to him that he'd done it. Uh, we had a whole ton of evidence on it, and but we were unsuccessful in our hearing of convincing a judge. So our client went back to prison, and so our other option was clemency. And the governor granted it, and then the governor changed his mind. Uh, so it's we're at the whim of of these wow. things. It's often wow. we don't even know why. Did you get an explanation? Well, <laughs> the explanation we had was that the victim in this case was Native American and that there was a big problem with abuse against Native Americans. Now, I don't disagree with that. Of course there is, but it gets past the issue that we firmly believe our client's innocent. Yeah. And that's that's kind of the thing sometimes. Like we'll go and argue in parole hearings to get our clients out because because my motto is, you know, by any legal means necessary. Yeah. So if we can't get their conviction reversed, we'll go to their parole hearings and argue to the parole board that our clients are innocent and hopefully get some mercy from them. But the problem is when we argue that our clients are innocent, then the parole board says, Well, I see your client has no remorse for the crime they obviously committed, and now we're gonna deny them parole. So um, if you ever see the Shawshank Redemption, which I think yeah. is the best prison movie ever. Yeah. yeah. That has a whole thing. It, there's two great things about that movie. First of all, it does talk about that phenomenon that you keep going to the parole board and being like, okay, I'm ready to go home. And then they say no every time. And then finally, when you're just worn down, they let you go. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? the internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about, but in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. 
on What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. And then the other part of it, which I deal with a lot, is the prisonization of our clients. Um, and you see that in uh, Morgan Freeman's character. And uh, Morgan Freeman is actually also an actor in the in our movie about our case, Brian Banks. He was in that as well. And uh, it's amazing the way he performs the whole thing when he gets out of prison and he's asking for permission to go to the bathroom when he's at his job. Yes, yeah, yeah. He he can't put down prison. And this is, I mean... He wasn't able to urinate unless somebody said go or something. Exactly. And that that is real. And that's where um, our prison system needs to be rethought. I actually spent six months in the UK going around the UK prisons um, and I wrote uh, a paper about it years and years ago. I was, trying to, I was trying to answer the question of why are there fewer prison riots in the UK than in the United States? And it, it, even though ostensibly those riots were about conditions of confinement and the conditions of confinement are really technically no better in the UK. In fact, some of them, like you go out to Dartmoor Prison, which is built by the Romans, and it's this freezing cold, you know, monolith out yeah. in the dart out by, with the Dartmoor ponies. Uh, and what I discovered was interesting. In the United States, we put our prisons hundreds and hundreds of miles away from the major cities, and so it's most of our clients never get visits or rarely get visits from family members. They become totally disconnected from them. Um, and the interaction between guards and inmates, I found to be so much better in the UK than in the United States. Uh, there seemed to be more conversation. I noticed that the guards would actually set tables up in the units where they would be in with the inmates, spending time with them. Um, they seemed to have more internal security than external security, whereas we're just trying to keep everybody caged in. 
And in the UK, they're interacting with them more to find out if there's a problem or a fight or some mm-hmm. plot or something. And the educational programs that were going on seem to be uh, more active than what we have. And so, you know, all these things of how you treat people in prison and how much you cut them off mm-hmm. from the community, we all got to deal with this when they come home eventually, if we're going to let them come home. And we yeah. really don't think those things through. And yeah. that's why one of the reasons we have such a high prison rate in the United States is because we also have one of the highest recidivism rates in the world, meaning most of these guys end up back in prison. Mm-hmm. And that's prisonization. And we have to work with our clients to get them past all that. We get them into therapy. We make sure they get jobs or get good places to stay. We right. set them up with lawyers to help okay. out if they have compensation claims, all those kinds of things. Yeah, I was going to ask about the aftercare and that kind of thing. Because I guess a lot of them go in innocent. As you say, these are people who were innocent of their crimes and then probably come out and they've been in such a rough environment for such a long time that it could change anyone. Yeah, and it doesn't change our clients in terms of them becoming criminals. You know, knock on wood, none of my clients have gone back to prison for committing a crime. Um, but I think a lot of that is due to the work that we've we've spent with them. But they, it's this like, you know, when you go to prison and you're guilty you can eventually get to a place psychologically of like, okay, I did this and uh, let me just do my time and get out of here. But when you're innocent, every morning you're waking up in a surrealistic nightmare because it's like you're you're not supposed to be there. And then when they get out, the initial thing is euphoria. And I've seen this again 35 times where it's like, and I sit and prepare them for it. Say, look, nobody cared about you for the last 20 years. For the next 48 hours, everybody's going to care about you. Media is going to want to talk to you. You become a little mini celebrity, and then they're all going to go away. And then you're going to have to pick up the rest of your life and figure it out. And it is a challenge because they're euphoric at first, and then it hits them in the face. Um, I actually show my students in my class the scene out of uh, Austin Powers where he's watching a video of everything that happened while he was frozen. And oh, yeah. it's, it's probably the only thing in the whole film series that was some, someone came up with the idea of let's, this won't be funny. It'll be this sort of bittersweet thing. And he's sitting there watching it and seeing, you know, the, the wall fall in Berlin and all these things that happened while he was frozen. That's our clients. Like life went on without them. And now they got to figure that out. None of them can ever figure out technology. I mean, getting them on the internet is a near impossibility if you haven't ever been on a computer. How long are we talking about these people, on average, that these people have been away for? So Joanne Parks, which was the last person we got out, um, she was in for 27 years. Um, So I just had breakfast with her the other day and was talking through some of these issues. So she's never been on a computer. She's never been on the internet. Wait, 27 um, years. So what's that? What's it now? 2021. 20, so that's like the 80s. 90s. Wait, what? Well, no, 90s. Right. I'm 31. <laughs> I'm not yeah. a math student. Uh, early, not early 90s. Right. Just before yeah. everything happened with technology. So who was on the internet in 1990? I mean, I graduated law school in 1990. And I remember there was one person in my class who had a computer. Yeah. So they existed. But And then most of our clients come from poor backgrounds. I mean, so they didn't have all the latest high-tech gear. Um, And you just don't realize that we've all gone through baby steps of learning, oh, this is just like 
you know, Word perfect. Well, Microsoft Word is just like that with a few little changes. <laughs> and then, you know, even every time you get a phone, think about this first couple of days, how annoying it is. Yeah, now yeah. imagine if you'd never had a smartphone and you're like, what? What does even downloading mean? What does updating mean? What They can't cope with any of it. And it's part of the ways our prisons, because the state prisons in California, they don't have computers. Do you think it brings them um, depression or, or something, that kind of thing? Or, or is it, maybe there's some excitement at first at look at this futuristic world. That's exactly what it is. The first thing is euphoria. And mm. if seriously, if you watch that video, Manny Tamberg, after 36 years, you see him in the car and he's like, oh, my God, everything's going so fast like a rocket ship. And he's all excited and amped. And, you know, that night he called me up and he said, have you ever slept on a posturpedic mattress? It's like sleeping on a cloud. <laughs> and he's amped about everything. But then the next thing you know, a week later, he's trying to get signed up for Medicare so he can get medical treatment. And they're saying, we can't sign you up because you're supposed to sign up when you're 62. And they said, why didn't you? They said, because I was in prison. <laughs> like the system isn't set up for them. Uh, they're an exception to every rule. In fact, in California, I'll tell you an even crazier thing. We had to get a law passed so that our innocent clients could get the same benefits that guilty people got when they were paroled. Because our clients weren't paroled, they weren't eligible wow. to live in halfway houses. They couldn't get job assistance. They couldn't get any of that stuff because it wasn't part of the system. They didn't get the gate money, the couple hundred bucks they give you at the door. They couldn't get any of that. They just weren't thought of. They weren't no, nobody because you don't set up the system. The system's supposed to work. So you don't set up a backup system if you believe the system works. Exactly. Man, exactly. that kind of injustice i was thinking about it in the last few days because i knew i was speaking to you and i was just thinking about like this idea of i i know i notice it myself like if i if i'm waiting 10 minutes in the i can wait if someone says in a supermarket you got to wait 10 minutes you're gonna get your food fine and then if someone says you're gonna wait five minutes but it should have been three minutes but someone's pushed in front of you that stays with me the rest of the day right. so imagine going through like 30 years or 20 years or even one even one day in prison when you knew you hadn't done it i don't think you can ever get over that they must be really bitter i would be so bitter yeah i you know that's an interesting thing too i think we all think we'll be really bitter and i do notice more of that bitterness in the people who've been in for three years five years the cli my clients that have been in for more than 20 years say always say the same thing that you can only be bitter for so long you can only be angry for so long or you realize it's going to kill you and so you have to let it go and so they actually adjust better on that part. They're less angry, but they're more frustrated by the modern world yeah. because they don't understand it. Um, it's, you know, I've had therapists work with my clients and they always say they, they love doing it because there's just no other type of person they've dealt with these kinds of psychological issues with because they're so completely unique. The idea of being falsely convicted and spending you know most of your life in prison for something you didn't do has psychological implications that we can't really imagine when you're fighting for these people um i don't know if you ever saw that other film because we we're talking about shawshank and there was, i can't remember what that film was called with edward norton and richard Gere. oh yeah with the with the great line you know that money you've been saving for a rainy day it's raining <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's brilliant yes i can't was, remember the name now either but i know the movie you're talking about what who said that that's that that's Richard Gere is the lawyer. It's become yeah. kind of a lawyer joke to say to people, you know, the money you've been saving for a rainy day. It's <laughs> when he was telling them how much it was going to cost for his fees. 
That's great. And then, oh, I suppose I shouldn't actually, I shouldn't use that as an example because some people might not have seen that film and they won't know about the big twist at the end. But too late, I've done yeah. it now. Um, <laughs> if you haven't seen it, you've had 30 years to watch that film. What's that called? Oh, that, I can't. I hate that when that happens. It's gone from us. Wait till, wait till you get older. Oh, it's happening already. It's happening. So, um, I don't know why I keep wanting to say Cape Fear because that came out the same year. It's not Cape Fear, no. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm searching it because it's going to drive me mad. This you, is, can du- you can dub it in. Ed Norton. No, because I, wa- I want the listeners to have to have the pain. Type in Ed Norton and Richard Gear. Richard Gear. I want the listeners to feel my pain as I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Primal Fear. Well, that's it. Primal Fear. That's why Cape Fear. Um, Primal Fear. Everyone's like, right. The point is, spoiler alert, he he was actually a bad guy, and he convinced Richard Gere the whole time that he was he he was a good guy. Has that happened to you? Have you ever had doubts and wondered if that was happening to you? Well, certainly in the process of evaluating cases, I mean, I always say to district attorneys, you would be surprised at how cynical we are in our office about innocence because we don't, you know, we pick mm. from thousands of cases, yeah, and we have to be convinced. So a couple of times a week. Law students will get up in front of me and the lawyers in my office and give presentations on cases they're investigating. And I have the awful Caesar-like thumbs up, thumbs down power. And most of them are thumbs down um, because I've seen it before and either I just don't believe it or I know we're not going to be able to prove it. There's been a few cases where I've determined that DNA will either prove this person innocent or prove this person guilty, right? So you, you have an old rape case, old rape murder case. No one ever tested the DNA. Guy gets convicted. I got no reason to believe he's innocent. I got no reason to believe he's guilty. I know the proof will be in that test. Okay. So I, I have a you know, speech that I give. I go out to the prison. I say, we can go forward with this testing. But just understand this. If this comes back and it's you, you are never getting out of here. Because this will be in your record confirming that you committed this crime and that you wasted the court's time and my time and everyone's time doing this testing. So don't have me do it if you, this is going to come back as you. And I've had a few people say, don't do the test. I've also had in the last 20 years, two people who I guess thought they could throw the spaghetti against the wall and hope for the yeah. best. And it came back them. And, uh, you know, the first one I was angry about because I had to raise the money for the test and it was thousands of dollars. And, you know, I just wasted my time and money and our energy on it. Um, but I've gotten past that in life. I mean, I see why people are going to mm. figure, why not? I'll give it a shot. So, sure, along the way in investigation and pursuing cases, we found guilty people. Sometimes we find evidence that they never found at first. It makes them even guiltier. Um, but we haven't had any cases where we go to court and then somebody's getting released because the standard is so high we have to have such compelling evidence of innocence that this is not going to happen. Um, there's yeah. very few people who end up making it past all the hurdles that they have to get past. What's the moment like when somebody looks you in the eye and says, oh, actually don't do the test? Is there a wry smile or are you pissed off? Uh, <laughs> probably somewhere in between. That depends how much how, how far away the prison was and how much desert driving yeah. I was doing. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I guess it's irritating, but I get it. You know, and I, the, you know, I used to have an office where people could just walk into the law school and walk right into my office. And I had to move my office. And now there's a code to get to my, 
mm-hmm. door and all this stuff. And because all day long, I would have parents show up with boxes of their kids' cases. Oh and God. as a parent myself, I know that I would do anything to get my kid out of prison, whether he did it or didn't do it. I'm going to be siding with my child and I'm going to fight for them as much as I can. And so parents are always the absolute worst referrals for a case in terms of getting an honest assessment. A lot of times their kids haven't been honest with them about whether or not they committed these crimes. So it's, it's, uh, you know, you, you have to, as much as you can, and, and this is not realistic, you have to take as much emotion out of the process as you can and just say, what are the facts? What are the facts? Because... I've been wrong, too. I had a guy that it was a horrible murder case, multiple victims. Um, all, all these women were raped, uh, murdered, dumped at elementary schools, and urinated on. This is like the worst cases I've ever seen, mm-hmm. among the worst cases I've ever seen. Um, and I spent hours with this guy in prison, his family. And I just kept thinking to myself, this guy couldn't have done this. It's so bad. It's just hard to believe that this guy could do this. And it came back and it was him. And, uh, you know, it was uh, very sobering because it was a reminder that we're not human lie detectors. And I even think sometimes people can go to a place in their brain where they don't believe they did stuff. Yeah. My girlfriend does that. <laughs> That's a good levity moment. I tell her she's done that. I'm like, I know you think you're telling the truth. <laughs> How patronizing would that be? I don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Mansplaining the truth. Yeah, yeah. That's a good idea. I know you've gotten to a point where you think you were right that I didn't take the, the garbage bins out or whatever, but actually. But that's about like arguments of believing you're right. This is to the point of I think people can actually repress factual information of stuff they've yeah. done because it's just so bad. They don't want to believe they did it. I mean, the brain is a crazy thing of what it's capable of, sure. you know, when... But if, if it was that bad, wouldn't it be more likely to be a psychopath? And there's a few. I mean, I dealt with this sociopath, um, Angel Resendez, who was on death row in Texas, and he murdered dozens of women um, with his bare hands. And I believe that he had murdered uh, this woman in this case I was working on. I spent some time with him on death row before he was executed. And he would talk about murder after murder, like he was talking about, you know, eating a sandwich. And it was just no bravado, no shame. It was just stuff that he did. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, there, there's a very, very, very small percentage of people like that. Like I've only met one Anhal Resendez in 30 years who's like a true sociopath. But I think there are other people who, uh, you know, re- change facts in their heads, change their own memories. That's one of the problems with identifications is that you get people sometimes on crime scenes and then they didn't see anything, but they start talking to other witnesses and then they start creating memories that they don't really have. And I always tell my students that if you want to test this out with a child, it's very easy to change a child's memory. Like you can, if you've got a niece or a nephew and they want to go to Disneyland, you can just say, and they're like four years old, five years old. You just say, yeah, no, no, I took you to Disneyland last year. And when they say, no, you didn't, you say, remember, I bought you that red dress and you bought the red dress in the UK. I bought you that red dress at Disneyland in in Florida, remember? Or it's actually Disney World in Florida. And she says, no, 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 I don't remember that. And And then while she's confused because you took a false piece of information and a true piece of information and combined them, you hit her with another one. You remember I bought you that cherry Coke and you bought the cherry Coke at a movie theater. Remember I bought you that at Disney World? 
And then if you get three or four suggestions of true information with false information, you can actually change that child's memory. And now they will have a memory of going to Disney World. It's cheaper. There's no lines. You don't have to fly anywhere. <laughs> uh, you know, I raised my yeah. children in the Matrix. I'm not sure if yeah. any of it's true. <laughs> you raised them on false memories. That's a great idea. That's the best advice you've given today, actually. Um, you go. <laughs> so, do you, um, so I think maybe probably the worldwide most famous case of wrongful conviction, at least acro- across the world, I think, might have been Amanda Knox. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think the thing with her, one funny thing is that in Britain, everyone is convinced that she is guilty. And I think in the States, it's everyone's convinced, convinced she wasn't. And it was only when I started watching docu- a documentary that was made in America that I realized that she probably didn't do it, apparently, where everyone in the UK, all the press was convinced she did it. And I think a big part of that was about how she reacted. She didn't react how we expect uh, other human beings to do at the crime scene. I think she was kissing her boyfriend or something at the crime scene, and she just looked laughing and stuff like that. Do you get cases where you, well, firstly, did you, obviously you followed that and I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on the Amanda Knox and how that influenced you. I'm actually close friends with Amanda Knox. So uh, yes. <laughs> Are you? Okay. Oh, that's yes. brilliant. Okay. So I'm going to ask you about that. And uh, yeah, the only, the next thing I was going to ask was like, do you, do you get cases where maybe the person isn't reacting the right way? And that's what, that's the problem. And, and, and there's, that's something we have to look at as humans because we don't always act exactly how one would expect. That's right. And that's, that is the problem. Um, many, many cases. Uh, I'll give you one example. Bill Richards, my client, came home and found his wife beaten to death. They live out in the middle of the desert. It's pitch black. Her body's on the ground. Her, her skull is cracked open. One of her eyes is out. Um, when the police get there, he's talking in a monotone voice about you know, his, what he thinks happened. And when the jury heard that, they just thought, this is weird. No one would react like this unless they're guilty. And the funny thing about that is actually the opposite is true. Like if you were guilty, you would at least try put on some kind yeah. of act that what people would yeah. expect. Uh, you wouldn't do that. But everybody has a different reaction to these shocking events. And most people don't understand it because they've never had that kind of shocking event. You know, thank God. But your human brain, again, going back to the brain, Sometimes when things are too much, when we can't even deal with them, the brain shuts down. That's why I see in cases people pass out when they find a dead body. Because it's like, this is too much information. I can't cope with it. Boom, they hit the ground. Other times people do what Bill Richards did, where they shut one part of their brain is still functioning. So they're they're still able to function, but they can't cope with the reality of it. So they're just going into this monotone mode. Other people do start screaming hysterically. I mean, you know, after 30 years of doing murder cases, I've seen every type of reaction. And in Amanda's case in particular, what they did was this. They, and I was with Amanda uh, last summer in Italy. Um, we were both speaking at a conference and the media was just insane. Uh, you know, everywhere she went, there's all these reporters, all these photographers. And what they do is they take thousands and thousands of pictures and then they try to create a narrative to go along with that. So you have all those pictures of her in court and they say Foxy Noxy, which is, you know, a name that she got in eighth grade from playing, you know, soccer. Um, and they just created this narrative about her of this sex pot American wasn't that bothered that the roommate gets killed, all this kind of stuff. And that narrative was extraordinarily powerful. And it was, you know... <laughs> ingrained in particularly the british minds with the british press and it was a british victim yeah that's why 
Oh yeah, all those yeah. things influence. It's, it's it's the principle of matching, where I use it all the time as an investigator. When I go into someone's home and I want to open them up and get information from them, what's the first thing I do? I look around the room and I try to find something that I can identify with to connect me with them. So if I see a poster for the Los Angeles Lakers basketball team, I'll be, oh, you're a Lakers fan? Oh yeah, they got a great go- thing going this year, blah, 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 blah. Now we're, it's called matching and bridging. Mm-hmm. So now we're connected in a way psychologically that now they trust me more for no other reason except for we're the fans of the same football team. When would you be doing this, getting information out of somebody, for example? Oh, anytime I'm doing a, an investigation or an interview of a witness, um, I train my students how to do that. We actually practice it. We'll sit in a room and I'll say, identify some things in this room that you can connect to me to then create a relationship before we start this conversation. This is what happened in Amanda Knox's case too. Why do British people care so much about it? Because it was a British victim. The biggest maritime disaster of all time was a ferry that sunk off the coast of Africa a number of years ago, and it got hardly any media play. But when you ask most people what's the biggest maritime disaster of all time, they say the Titanic that sunk 100 years ago. Now, why do they care more about the Titanic? It was filled with Americans and British people, mostly white people, and people connect with that tragedy. It's the same thing that, you know, when there's a terrible flood in Britain um, and a terrible flood in India, what are people going to care more about in Britain? We all connect with things we relate to. So Amanda had that unfortunate situation where the combination of some of the most vicious media in the world and some of the least scrupulous (laughs) being the British media. I'm part of that. (laughs) (laughs) Well... You're not, I, I know what part you're of and not part of, it's yeah. it, the, the tabloid media in Britain. Yeah. Is, I used to work at the Sun. <laughs> okay, so then you did play a role. <laughs> you know what, I, I got there just after uh, they had the um, the News of the World scandal, you know, they were hacking phones. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was all shutting down and stuff. And I got, I, I worked, you know, it was my first ever job. I was 21 and I worked nights and they gave me the job because, you know, they had the page three girl. Do you know yep. that? Oh yeah. My my job, apart from the rest of my job, my job was at the end of the night at like four or five in the morning. I had to make sure the page three girl was up on the iPad. There was a three D version of her that you could twist around. She'd turn her all the way around and make sure it was working. And sometimes it didn't work well. And I had to, you know, I had to be on the phone to India till like where they had the systems working or whatever till like six or seven in the morning, uh, trying to get. I'm like, she's not spinning right. It's not quite working. You know, needless to say, I, I left that job as soon as I could. It was quite depressing. But um, your, pa- your parents must have been very, very proud. <laughs> <laughs> they really were. Well, oh, if somebody has to do that important task. But yeah, yeah, then, yeah. You, then you were a part of it. So you understand it. And, yeah. I, you know, I get it. And I actually do training sometimes with lawyers about controlling the narrative. Like if that narrative gets out into the media, that's so negative. It's very hard to turn back the clock. And when you have jury trials, they always mm. get influenced by it. I mean, it's very rare to have a sequestered jury. Are juries good? That is a great question because uh, mm. I do a lot of work in countries that don't have juries and I'm not as sold on them as most people in Britain and the U.S. are. Um, okay. I think I would rather have a jury than a judge because of just simple poker rules, right? If it, with a judge, the DA has only got to convince one person your client's guilty. With a jury, they got to convince 12 people your client's guilty. So the odds are better in my favor to go with a jury. But there's tremendous problems with the system. I mean, people just get out of jury duty. They don't want to do it. We don't get the best and the brightest. 
It leads to a lot of theatrics. Um, they don't understand science. And so lots of times they're, they're just, it's smoke and mirrors. People are biased as well. People have biases, you know? People have biases. But then the problem is judges have biases. Right. And right. so, you know, I've seen in, in Britain sometimes, in some courts, they use the one judge and two citizens model, which I think is an interesting one. We don't have anything like that in the U.S. Um, where the two citizens can overrule the judge. Oh. Uh, but the judge is there to explain the law. And then the jurors are there to assess the facts. I don't know if that's better. I, I just know none of it is perfect, you know, sure. and you can criticize it. And the reason most countries haven't adopted a jury system is it's very, very expensive, very unwieldy to get all these people down to the courthouse and organize them and screen them out. And you got to pay them a few bucks and give them lunch and all this yeah, stuff. Yeah. That, that's up. why it hasn't been adopted. Yeah. But it's, and, you know, in poorer countries, people couldn't afford to do it or. It's hard enough to run those systems in, you know, the U.S. and in the U.K. Imagine mm -hmm. some countries trying to set that system up. It's very, very difficult. Do the people you deal with often, are they, uh, are they often black? Are they often from uh, racial minorities and, and things? And do you think the system is uh, rigged against them in some ways? There's no doubt that racism impacts profoundly our criminal justice system. The only people who think it doesn't are just don't know. I've not spent any time in a courthouse mm. to really understand it. Um, first of all, the most obvious one that I've dealt with in my career is how the race of the victim impacts the system. And it goes back to what we were just talking about with matching. Uh, if it, When you have death penalty cases, it's very, very rare to ever have a case go to death where it wasn't a white victim. It's very rare that someone gets sentenced to death for murdering a person of color. Hmm. And a lot of that has to do with the majority of jurors are white. And when they hear all the evidence about a black person getting killed, it doesn't impact them in the same way it does when that person looks like their wife, looks like their daughter, looks like their family members, where they can identify with them. Hmm. And so when you look at statistics in the United States, the top two reasons people get the death penalty in the U.S. is the quality of their defense lawyer and the race of their victim. Um, those are the most controlling criteria. It's not who committed the worst crimes, the most violent crimes, not who's most deserving. It's who had the worst lawyer and who killed a white person. And particularly, you see this with female victims, young female victims. Um, okay. in, in California, we have a number of laws that are literally named after young white girls who got murdered. And the community gets so outraged in those cases that there ends up being a law passed that's named after them. So clearly race impacts that. And when I practiced in Washington, D.C., D.C. is one of the most progressive places in the United States. The Washington Post is known as one of the progressive newspapers in the United States. Yeah. And yet, and every single day, a young black man was killed and it would end up in the metro section in the back of the paper. Every time there was a white victim, it would be on the front page. And that's where the racism starts, because now that case is more important. Now it's got more press. Now it's going to be focused on more. Um, so you really see it crystal clear in victims, and you can look at the stats. And then you see it with defendants that they are overrepresented, people of color in the system, and get greater sentences from judges. Uh, you know, it's, it's ridiculous to think that if we live in a racist society that we're not going to have a racist criminal justice system. It is based of the same people that are in our society and all those biases and prejudices all come into the courtroom. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, lawyers use them to their advantage or disadvantage, but I don't know a single trial lawyer that's not aware of that stuff going on and doesn't try to either mitigate it or utilize it in some way. It's, wow. it's reality. It's horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me quickly, because we've gone over time a bit. I mean, I could talk to you about this for three hours. You've probably got stuff to do as well. Um, what was it like being played by Greg Kinnear? Yeah, that was a surrealistic thing. So first of all, going through the process with the production company of who they were going to cast as me in the Brian Banks movie uh. was sort of weird. Getting calls about famous people that I'll leave nameless. And what do you think about this person? What do you think about that person? And I'm kind of, uh, Come on, who, oh, who else? Was there anyone quite uh, famous? No, I'm, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Too famous to mention. De Niro. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I would have loved De Niro. Yeah, right. A little, little older than me, but so Greg Kinnear. When they told, when they talked about Greg Kinnear, I was like, yes, Greg Kinnear is, is exactly who I'd love to represent me. And then, yeah. so Greg came down and he sat in on my classes and he sat in my office oh, and cool. he uh, spent all this time with me trying to figure out little nuances and things and. A lot of it I didn't pick up on in the movie, but my wife did and my staff ah, did. And that's there's, so funny. There's once, yeah, it, was, it is surreal sitting in a movie theater and seeing someone portray you. And they're so hung up in the movies about getting everything right. So it's he's driving my Jeep. He's sitting at my desk <laughs> with my little baubles on my desk and my posters behind him on the wall. And he's wearing my Jerry Garcia tie and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I actually play a small role in the movie as a bartender. And so I'm serving him a drink <laughs> in oh, the movie. that's so cool. So being on the set and all that. And yeah. it, what's great is we become good friends and he's really been involved in the project and he comes to events. And he, he's always had this incredible nice guy uh, reputation in Hollywood. And it is real. Uh, working oh. with him was such a joy. Oh. And uh, he was very patient when I was correcting him on a lot of things. Uh, on the set even about legal terms that were used and stuff like that so uh yeah it was surreal but i was really pleased with the outcome i was really nervous about it yeah of course because that's that's gonna be me to the whole world is whoever he is <laughs> right it's, it helps that he's handsome then doesn't it He's handsome. He's but you don't want anyone to be too handsome because then no. you show up at the premiere and they're thinking, <laughs> you know, you don't want Brad Pitt playing you and yeah, you show yeah, up yeah. and like, this guy doesn't look like Brad Pitt. You know what? He's not significantly more handsome than you are. <laughs> that's a that's that's a lie. He, no, but you know what? He's he's the Hollywood. He does look similar to you, at least in the film. He does. He's he's maybe the Hollywood take on you. It is funny, isn't it? Because I I know what you why you were thinking that because you've seen films where at the end they show the real person. And you've, you, with your horrible mind, you've gone, oh, oh. <laughs> that's a shame. We all have experienced that. I've never I done that because I think of everyone as equal, but you have done that. <laughs> Congratulations. You're enlightened. <laughs> Can I have you back on sometime in like a year or something? Because I, I, it's I only did yeah. an hour long, but this needed to be out. I want to ask you about the death penalty. I want to ask you more about Brian Banks. Um, sure. This is a pleasure. told you this was a good one. I honestly could have spoken to Justin for hours and we even agreed that he'll come back on another time. There was so much I wanted to ask him about his thoughts on the death penalty for example and to go deeper into some of the other wrongly convicted stories. Anyway, 
If you're hungry for some more chat with Justin, then catch the 10 minutes of bonus material on patreon.com slash andrewgold. We talk about everything from accents and the UK to race and the problem with news channels. Some really insightful stuff. Um, Here's a short teaser about Obama. The the, the false news, the fake news movement um, has been particularly scary combined with the internet. I mean, the interactions I have on Facebook and Twitter with people, it's just unreal, the stuff that people think is reality. We're still having the conversation of whether Obama is a U.S. citizen. I mean, there's still millions of people who believe he was born in Kenya. Who would even care if he was? As well, he's it, not eligible to be president of the yeah, Constitution. Well, I don't like that. I'm biased against that because it means I couldn't be the president. And I, I, I know I can't be, I know I won't be the president, but I like the idea that if I wanted to be, because American culture has such a big impact on the world's culture, that I could be. So, so the rest of that is on patreon.com slash andrewgold. It was an amazing experience talking to Justin. I also love the idea of him gathering his volunteer students to work together on getting people out of jail. If anyone has seen the series How to Get Away with Murder, they'll probably have thought of that when he explained it. There's just something so nice and somehow cosy about the thought of his team of students getting together late into the night to work through cases that have such gravity and can save lives. Remember Thursday the 18th of February at 8pm GMT, that's 8 hours ahead of California, I'm hosting a chat room on a website called Discord. I'll see if Justin can come to answer all of your questions, as I will as well. It'll be a bit of fun, so please do come so it's not totally uh, embarrassing. There'll be a link to it in the show notes, so just click on the show notes and you can go to it. Do follow Justin on Twitter and Instagram. He's Justin O. Brooks, as well as Facebook, where he's simply Justin Brooks. And find out more on the CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org. Join me next week when my guest will be documentary maker and podcaster Joshua Baker, who made the amazing series I'm Not a Monster and the documentary Return from ISIS about a woman whose family joined ISIS. It's amazing, so give it a listen in advance. There's your homework. Thanks for your amazing reviews, by the way, on Apple this week. Please, everyone, continue to do so. It's one of the things that attracts bigger guests to the show. Uh, Renaboom, with whom I've been chatting on Facebook, wrote, I'm hooked. Andrew seems to find such amazing guests and topics that I didn't even know I would find interesting. I look forward to every episode. This podcast is entertaining, insightful, educational, and at times controversial. Plus, he knows five languages, winky face. Now that's a reference to my constant gloating about the languages I speak and my fear of being somewhat immodest. Um, Grace wrote came across Andrew Gold on my daily run back on last lockdown when I switched from music to podcasts now Andrew is in my weekly library thank you for keeping your interviews interesting and never biased many favorites but I truly enjoyed the Stephen Knight one I love the way you are very relevant and professional but at the same time you could be my next door neighbor with whom I would love to chat well done and thank you again Thank you, Grace. That was very nice. I would love to be your next-door neighbour, providing you live somewhere affordable. Sean O'Connor in Ireland said... I've li- I've li- <laughs> I'm not going to do the accent. Okay, from Ireland. I've listened to their terrorist and third podcasts. No, I'm not doing it. Not doing it. I've listened to the first and third podcasts. Absolutely brilliant. I love interviewers like this guy. An absolute thirst for information, and it pays off for the listener. Great company on my 8km walk. It's not bad that I can't. I just walked to the shops and I'm out of breath already. And that was like less than 1 km. 
km, kilometer, kilometer, miles back in the UK. And Hopsanis Shop in Russia wrote, Great podcast, informative, and host has a great radio voice. Let's guest speak. Doesn't talk over, like many other hosts. Super annoying. Pleasant to listen to. Keep up the great work. Why, thank you for that as well. It's so lovely to read with my radio voice. It really is. Uh, No, it's very nice. Thank you. And on that note, I'll see you all either at this Thursday's chat room or next week's podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.